morning, I'll be reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he gave Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Daniel's faithfulness, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the units had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, we begin a new series today called Hashtag Rethink. Uh, Engage in technology without disengaging God. And we would say as we talk about engaging technology, that technology, uh, because of its um, prolific nature, uh, also uh, brings with it culture. And so how to engage technology, parenthetically culture, without disengaging God. Dave Kinneman and Gabe Lyons opened their book, Good Faith, published just this year with these words. 
extremist. In our part of the world these days, this word is about as aggressive an insult as you can throw down in polite company, instantly associating the recipient with rifle-brandishing ISIS militants, Paris bombers, or Boko Haram kidnappers. In some people's eyes, if you are a devoted Christian today, this label now describes you. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Extremist. Prayed for someone you don't know? Extremist. Believe marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman? Extremist. Would you give up a good paying job to do mission work? Extremist. Do you believe Christians have a responsibility to talk about Jesus with non-believers, even with strangers? Extremist. In just a few weeks, 3.2 million students will walk across high school stages and graduate. If you are their parents, they are entering a world very different than the one you entered when you graduated high school. Let me just show you what's happened in the last hundred years. We all thank God for 1902, the invention of the air conditioner. And all God's people say... Amen. And then came antibiotics and penicillin. No small invention there. The first digital computer, I'm sure it would fill a room, came in 1937. And microwave ovens. All the singles in the room go, yes, and all the people who don't want to cook. And so, microwave ovens. And believe it or not, in 1973, the first mobile phone. If you want to see that used, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Just go watch some of those. The first mobile phone. January of 1992, the internet. Here's what I want you to see. It's called acceleration in culture. It's when you have an idea and you have something that happens and all of a sudden, boom, it flies. Look at how far apart the dots are until you get... To the end here, the 90s, we have the internet in uh, January of 1992. That's two years I'm old after I graduated college. In December of 92, the first text message in, in January of 93, GPS came on the scene. And then we have Google coming on the scene. Actually, uh, the first MP3 player in March of 98 and Google in September of the same year. We are in a technology-accelerated culture. If you are a parent of a teenager... You can stick your head in the sand and pretend that things are the same as they were when you were uh, the age of your children. Or you can admit the reality that your children are growing up in a different world than the one in which you were born. If you're a student in here, the question for you this morning is, how do you engage a culture through technology that calls you an extremist for things that when your parents did those things, they were considered virtuous? When your parents did those very things, they were considered to be good and right and even godly. Thankfully, Scripture speaks to this. 
2,600 years ago, um, there were four boys and they were ripped away from mom and dad. They were pulled out of their temple worship. No longer could they go to the synagogue. They were kidnapped uh, right out from and under their parents. They were teenagers. These are young, young men. Uh, They are put onto a military caravan. It's a 900-mile trek that would have taken four months. They go to a strange land where they speak a strange language and eat strange food and do strange things and worship strange gods. Lest the familiarity of this story just kind of ease you into some complacency for those four months in that caravan with those strangers. Don't you think that there were many anxious thoughts? Longing for mom and dad, unless they were able to grab a copy or a scroll of the uh, of the Old Testament, which they would have had by that point, uh, at least the Torah, the first five books, and some of the Psalms, unless they were able to grab that, they're now depending on what is in the brain. There are no songs to download, no WMIT to listen to, there are no sermons stored in any device that they have. They are now on their own as teenage boys in a strange place. That was Daniel and his three friends. They're described in verse 4 as youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent. Uh, these are the best and the brightest. I would say to you, if this wicked king Nebuchadnezzar's tactics, and I think they are, are a microcosm of what Satan does on a macro level, then his tactic is to go after the best and the brightest. That if you sit here this morning and you are a a young person who is intelligent, you are able to articulate, you are able to think that you have a bullseye on your back and Satan knows he can score if he can get you. And never has it been easier for him to do that through technology. His message goes forward in such uh, uh, quick speed and at great access to you. What you hear isn't what God is saying often. It's called indoctrination. Indoctrination means teaching someone to accept a set of beliefs without questioning them. The dictionary gives this example. Your sister's orientation at her new job might seem more like indoctrination if she comes home robotically reciting her corporate employee handbook. Brainwashing, you might call it, is what's happening here from King Neb to Daniel and his friends. Just this week, Facebook came under fire. Because it was determined that their algorithm, which they developed to determine which stories trend down, intentionally excluded anything that could be connected with a conservative cause. And so all of a sudden, Zuckerberg and clan are scrambling to try to figure out who's doing this. They know that they don't want to exist that way. But indoctrination 
That's how it works. What is the plan of King Neb? Teach them his literature and language. Uh, Let me talk about the language because you have to learn the language, obviously, before you can learn the literature. So the language is uh, Akkadian is what it's called. It's cuneiform language, meaning it's symbols, wedge-like, triangle-looking symbols. They would uh, learn it this way, uh, write, uh, they learn the symbols and then write small phrases. And once they write the small phrases, they would uh, copy the literature. They would copy short stories or poems or other things where they're, they're connecting the language, the, the symbols with actual phrases. And then once they've done that, they would copy large pieces of literature. And once they've copied the large pieces of literature, compose their own. Uh, What happens with this? Well, any culture's literature is a reflection of the culture's religion. Any culture. You read their literature and and it is inundated with that culture's religion. And so why would Babylon do this? And why would King Neb go into Judah, extract the best and the brightest, bring them over to Babylon, uh, put them in this amazing place? Why in the world would he do it? Because if he could get them educated, he'll send them back. And they will then become those who advocate what he wants to see happen. Imperialism is at work. If... King Neb's uh, uh, tactics are a microcosm of how Satan works. Satan then will, through technology, get the word out and indoctrinate you, especially if you sit in this room and you are a teenager. Let me get him to think my way. Let me get her to think my way. And as soon as I do, I've got him or her. And guess what? They become then in their own sphere. A champion of my message. So here we are. And they bring them in. You see, the Mesopotamian worldview was polytheistic in nature, superstitious in character, and pluralistic in practice. In other words, they believed in many gods, many experiences, many religions, all equal. Sound familiar? Many gods, many religions, many experiences, all equal. That was the Babylonian culture. It's not enough to teach the language and the literature. Now we've got to go one step further. We're going to change their names. We're going to wipe away any semblance that they are Hebrew. And so notice the name change. Daniel. All right, E-L comes from Elohim, the, the, the holy name of God. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. We'll change his name to Bel protects his life, Belteshazzar. Bel, the God of the Babylonians, protects his life. Let's look at the next name, Hananiah. Comes from that Yahweh, that uh, more personal name for God. Yahweh has been gracious. We'll change his name to Shadrach. I am fearful of Aku. The moon God. Watch it continue. Mishael, who or what is God? We'll change him to Meshach, who is what Aku is. Let's continue. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. We'll change him to Abednego, servant of Nebo. This is indoctrination at its best. 
Let's teach them the language. Let's teach them the literature. Let's change their names. Let's remove their identity. And as we do that and establish a new identity for them, all semblance of Hebrewism, Hebraism is gone. They're ours now. Once we've uh, won them over and taught them everything we want to teach them, we'll ship them back over to Judah and we will have vassals there that will be doing our bidding. But Daniel was different. So were his friends. So different that verse 8 is that critical verse in all of this But Daniel resolved. He resolved. I want to say something to you this morning. The the, the one line, one takeaway of this sermon is when you resolve, God gives. That's the takeaway. But I want to pause here to say something. Resolving must happen before. It seldom happens during. Say, Jerry, what do you mean? If you do not resolve ahead of time what you will do, when the trial and the temptation comes, you're likely to cave. If somewhere along the line you haven't made up your mind, somebody else will make it up for you. That's the point. You see, somewhere in the youth of Daniel and his friends, there was a dad who spoke to him in great resolution. And somewhere his friends had dads and moms who raised boys to be young men of resolve. So that as teenagers, when the temptation came in and they're in a strange place with strange people learning a strange language... They resolved. A couple of weeks ago, I said, when you do not feel, you must will. Uh, You will not always feel like doing the right thing or saying the right thing or being in the right place. In those times, you must will yourself to do it. And certainly, this is one of those cases. But something interesting is happening. If you're thinking here, you've got to ask yourself this question. What did Daniel resolve not to do? Eat the king's food. Why? I'll learn the language. I'll um, read the literature. Change my name. I'm not eating your food. That's strange. At first, listen, you would say, well, uh, perhaps it was unclean. Probably so. But any food the king is going to serve is going to be unclean. Uh, How about the wine? The only people forbidden from drinking wine in the Old Testament are Nazarites and Rechabites, and we have no record that they're either of those. So it's probably not the wine. Why? Daniel 11.26 gives us some insight Even those who eat his food, this is another king now, shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. This is talking about another king. Uh, Here, the equivalent of eating the king's food is being the king's man. You see, in Eastern culture, to sit down and have a meal with someone said, I'm in. 
This was covenant significance. This is my king. I am his servant. I am his subject. And Daniel said, I will not do that. I will not eat the king's meat. And so this gives us then a question for you. What is the king's food for you? What is it? Andy Crouch has written a good article called 10 Most Significant Cultural Trends of the Last Decade. And I want to share some of those with you because I'm thinking that among these trends, you may have discovered that you've sat down at the king's table and perhaps have started to eat the king's food. Number one, the video touched on it, connection. In June 2000, 97 million mobile phone subscribers existed in the United States. Ten years later, in June 2010, 293 million. That's an industry you hope you bought stock in in 2000. Rose by 300%. We'll just do the test right here. How many of you own a cell phone? Raise your hand. Look around the room. Yeah. We are connected. In 2000, Facebook had zero subscribers. In 2010, Facebook had 116 million subscribers. That's why Zuckerberg is a billionaire. Uh, connection, or perhaps the lack thereof. His fifth, I'm skipping some, of course, are, as he calls, polarity. Uh, what do we mean by polarity? Maybe the word polarization is more familiar to you. Because of the advances of technology now, people who even hold a minor point of view or a minority point of view have as much space in media to advance their point of view than those who hold a majority point of view. And so what has developed is called polarity. Dividing lines. I blogged about this, and if you didn't get it, go to the blog, enoughfortoday.org. I blogged about this on Friday. But the Department of Justice's decision to mandate that all public schools accommodate transgender people. I want to speak to the underlying problem of what they did. There is absolutely no compassion in that edict for transgender people. They are simply pawns at that point. Why? If you ever have conversation with transgender people, they're not out there, most of them, with it. A few are. What this does is immediately causes people to draw sides, you see. If... If the department, which I 
honestly like to refer to these days as the Department of Injustice. If they like to do this, there's nothing good or little good, let me say that, that they're doing for transgenders. Why? The problem is so much more complex than bathrooms in schools. So much more. And so if we're not careful as a church, we're tempted to be drawn in on the other side. And so we'll scream and holler on our side for the overreach of government, which is clear here. We'll scream and holler on our side for the breach of morality, which is clear here, and fail to love, guess who? Transgenders. We will. And guess who will go to hell without Christ? Transgenders. Oh, we're drawn in on all sides of this. The same thing is happening with homosexuality. So where does the church land? What do we do? Well, we, we stick to our message, the gospel. What does the gospel essentially say? Tim Keller says, the gospel is in, in, in a succinct sentence, I'm such the sinner that Christ had to die for me. I'm so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. But I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. And church, that includes lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgenders, and thieves, and gossips, and murderers, and uh, adulterers, and the list could go on and on, all of whom are so sinful, uh, Jesus had to die for them, but so loved that he was glad to die for them. Amen? All are included. All are included. All are possible recipients of the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anything that drags us off course with that message then, the enemy has won. It's easy to sit down at the table of polarization and eat the king's food Oh, do we engage politically? Yes. I sent an email to a very high-ranking political person yesterday. Happened to have his personal email address. Reached out to him. Do we? Yes, we do. With the gospel. With the gospel. Just ran across this book on... Wednesday, started reading it on Thursday, finished it yesterday. Good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. All our available copies were sold in the early service. But if you want a copy, thought-provoking from Gabe Lyons and Kinneman, thought-provoking on how we as the church engage the culture today. Uh, we'll order it for you. Just see Robin as you leave. We have a deal with Amazon. We'll get it to you as quickly as we can. Polarity. Uh, number six, he says, the self-shot. 
also known as the selfie. When movie directors in the 2030s are trying to convey in a single glance uh, that their scene is set in the 2000s, they'll use the selfie, he says. Why? If you've ever been on a mission trip, you've experienced this, and there's a kid, and the kid has never seen a picture of himself, right? You have a digital camera, and you take the picture, and immediately they run around to your digital camera, and their face will light up. They've never seen a picture of themselves. Well, used to, you had to wait and get it developed, right? And you went to Eckerd. What the heck is Eckerd? And uh, you picked it up. Your film. You, you hope it came out right. And so there was this delay between picture and that, and now it's immediate. And, uh, and so what you saw every day wasn't a true image of you. You see, it was a mirror, and mirrors are a reverse image. Pictures are not. And so what Crouch says has now taken off as big, big business, body modification, augmentation, reduction, smoothing, straightening, whitening, tanning, not to mention tattooing, became normative. Why? All I do all day is look at myself. All day long. I take selfies. All day. Some of you have have eaten the king's food uh, called the self-shot. Number seven, he says, is pornography. Here I quote, superimposed on every image of our own bodies and the bodies of our friends and lovers were the idealized bodies of pornography and its close cousin, advertising in popular culture, which differ from porn only in not consummating the voyeuristic impulses they arouse. I'm afraid some of you, some of us, have eaten the king's food. When you resolve, God gives. What? And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Favor means mercy, love and kindness, compassion, tender love. God caused a pagan to love Daniel. I'm I'm serious. The guy's a pagan and he has tender love for Hebrew servants, these teenage boys. I remember, some of you have heard this story, when I went to grad school, I became a GA. I worked for the assistant vice president of the University of South Carolina, and he was full of himself. Thank God selfies didn't exist then because he would have been into it. His white starched shirt, you couldn't get your pocket down it. And I went, sat down with, uh, with Mark and uh, he said, it was my interview, and he, he had learned somehow, done his homework, that I was a Christian. And he said, so I hear you're a Christian. Yes, sir. And he said, well, you're going to bring that in here. And I knew what he meant by that. And I said, no, sir. And he said, "Um, um, I I think I said, I'll just bring myself. And he said, uh, uh, well, uh, if I say certain things, uh, will it offend you? No, sir. And then he began. And he worked his way through the cadre of vile and vulgar words, getting to the very worst. And he would pause and he would say, how about that? No, sir. How about that? No, sir. He was 23 at the time. 
And thankfully, by God's grace, had resolved that I would live for him. So we went through the year. I had the privilege of, uh, of, of leading, um, oh my gosh, so many people in my major. Uh, they would come and eat free lunch at my house. Uh, because if they came to church with me, they got a free meal. And I'd get up early and cook on Sunday mornings. Old-fashioned food. They had never eaten pinto beans and cornbread. And I didn't know how to cook anything else. I had two meals. No lie. Chicken casserole and green beans or pinto beans and cornbread. And they thought that was better than what they were going to have. And so by the end of the year, an entire row uh, at, at church was, was mine. All my friends. And Mark kept cursing. And so it was the end of the year, and he said, Jerry, I'd like you to come to dinner at our house. And I was thrilled. That's a joke. Um, I thought, what in the world? So I go to his house and remember sitting in that little dining area surrounded by windows. And I determined ahead of time that I wouldn't pray out loud. That'd be rude. It's his house after all. I would just sit there and kind of say my blessing beforehand. And so I recall still to this day sitting there and it was time to eat. And he and his wife and two children, young children, were seated seated at the table. And it was time to pray or time to eat. And I just had prayed to myself. And I was getting ready to grab the fork and I look up and all around around they're holding hands and I feel two hands grab for mine and he said Jerry would you pray for us what I thought Lord this is my chance I've waited all year for this and I lie you not I bowed my head and preached the gospel I did. I prayed Jesus over that food uh, crucified resurrected coming again Like, God, thank you, finally. But do you know what? They respected me. I've not always done this right, but for that year, just living faithfully, God gave me favor with a pagan, with an unbeliever. God gave me favor. And that's what happened. God also gave them learning. Uh, It says in verse 17, and for these four youths, that word literally means children. These four teenagers, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Daniel had to know about the story of Asa. You see, in 2 Chronicles, we see the story of Asa. In 2 Chronicles, uh, let's go to the second, uh, uh, second Chronicles passage, verse 16. There's a guy named Hananiah. He comes to the king Asa and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria, you ate the king's food. Look at that. You ate the king's food and did not rely on the Lord your God. The army of the king of Syria has escaped you. And then he gives an incident where he relied on God. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with many chariots and horsemen? And uh, yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. Look at verse 9. You should jot this down. Commit it to memory. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to find one whose heart is blameless toward him. Why? That he might show himself strong on his behalf. So I ask you the question this morning. If God's eyes are roving throughout the earth to find one whose heart is his, 
will he stop and look at you and go, I'd like to show myself strong for her. I want to show myself strong for him. Will he? He's looking. He's looking, middle schoolers. He's looking, high school students. Single person. Committed to purity. He's looking. If you sit here this morning and you're struggling with your sexual identity, he's looking. Will your heart be completely his? He's looking. Three years passed. That's what we learn in verse uh, 18. At the end of the time, they bring three years. Learning the language, reading the literature, doing everything but eating their food. Please hear me on this. Two out of every five public school teachers is a practicing Christian. You can learn the language, read the literature, even get your name changed and not eat the king's food. Amen. Our goal at Grace and Youth Ministry is to raise up college students. Not youth. Raise up college students who love Jesus more at the end of their college career than at the beginning. That's our measure of success. That's it. Several of them in the early service this morning just graduated. Do they love Jesus more now than when they went in as a college student? You can learn the king's literature. You can, you can read the king's books. You can go to the king's classes. Jesus said we are in the world, but what? Not of it. You can do that without caving to the world's system of believing. And so Daniel and his three friends without their synagogue, without their temple, without their parents, without the scroll, without the preached word, still resolved. Verse 21 tells it. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This means that Daniel was resolved for 70 years. Years almost in captivity. Wow. Oh, there's some of you who are older in here and you wonder, can I hold my footing? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, all the young people in the room beg you, please do. Please do. Stand firm. We're watching you. Stand firm. Uh, There was a woman in the mid-1800s. Her name, Eliza Hewitt. Eliza Hewitt um, went to school and became a school teacher in Philadelphia. She taught Uh, For a few years until one day, one of her students picked up a piece of slate and hit her with it, injuring her spinal cord and leaving her an invalid for the rest of her life. That will test your resolve, won't it? What would Eliza now do because her dream of being, her dream of being, A career teacher is over. 
Her dreams of family are done. Eliza Hewitt finds herself in a predicament. Was she resolved before that piece of slate came down on her back? Well, she figured out that probably the church she attended would still keep her in her invalid state as a Sunday school teacher. And for years, she taught children. Invalid Eliza Hewitt. Refusing to worship her self-fulfillment, right? She decided that the local children's home, those little children... They didn't care if she was an invalid, so she went there and she served. And then she took her pen out and began to write some hymns. If you've ever sung with great joy, sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place when we all get to heaven. Eliza Hewitt wrote that after the piece of slate came down on her back. Do you think somewhere along the line, Eliza Hewitt realized that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus might be the greatest self-fulfillment of all time? Yes. She wrote that old hymn, more about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his mercy see. Eliza Hewitt, somewhere along the line, realized that perhaps if God never healed her, he'd still be God. Amen? But this hymn, in my opinion, is her best. My faith has found a resting place. It's old, 1891. You may never have sung it, but you're about to. Because in its words, I'll stop you before verse 4. In these words are declarations that if you bank on today, you'll live to see tomorrow through all of the cultural changes will sing a saint's song who when everything came crashing down she soared up why she resolved and god gave